handle the truth. Bingo! You are now listening to the facts. Welcome back to Straight Facts, a sports show that educates and entertains. I'm Jules Schmitz, accompanied by James Jackson, Jake Galley, and in the back, crunching numbers, Stat Matt. This past week in sports, everyone, the U.S. women beat Spain 2-1 to one and will face host country France in the quarterfinals of the Women's World Cup. U.S. men beat Trinidad and Tobago 6-0 in the Gold Cup. Albert Pujols made his first return to St. Louis since leaving for the Angels in 2012. Kevin Durant opts out of player option with the Warriors becoming an unrestricted free agent. Here's a fact straight at you. In their rookie seasons, Giannis, Rudy Go- Gobert, and Jimmy Butler all struggled, averaging less than seven points per game on inefficient shooting. What players in the this year's draft will initially struggle but eventually become all-star caliber players? A player I'm really looking at right now um, is Chumo Kigi. He went 16 to the Orlando Magic. I think they really got a good guy here. If you got to remember, he's one of the best, if not the best player on Auburn's team until he tore his ACL in the tournament. Um, he averaged 12, 6, and 1.9 assists before getting injured. Um, and he's just that great swingman type uh, wing player. And he, he fell all the way to 16. The Magic got a steal on that one. Yeah, I think. And he's someone who coming and speaking of players who struggled early on and then got it going. You're right. He's going to be coming off of a big injury Mm. I liked him pre-draft he's a guy who hustles um, is good on defense and can knock down a three-pointer when you have that as your base skill set in the NBA there's a lot of room for you to grow up someone who also reminds just speaking of guys who I think will struggle I mentioned uh, Cam Reddish Mm -hmm. who fell in the best situation we'll talk about him in a little bit but he's a good guy as well but back to Kiki at 16 you're right I, I, I don't know if I'd call it a steal by the magic because I think that's probably where I would have projected him. Right. I mean, um, the best case scenario, him coming off an ACL tear is being in the top 20 to be picked anyway. Right. And a lot of times you look at guys who fall in the draft um, and it's because of injury. Mm-hmm. Okiki could be one of those guys. And if you look at the way that he fits into Orlando, Orlando is an interesting team to me because they have pretty consistently just picked best available player, yeah. which has left them with a ton of big men. You have Jonathan Isaac. Right, you have Jonathan <laughs> Isaac, Aaron Gordon, Nick Vucevic, and Mo Bamba. Nick Vucevic might be on his way out um, because they want to make room. I think Okiki can, you, you can slot him in to a starting lineup with those guys. I don't know exactly when... He'll be coming back. But if you look at specifically that spot at 16, we talked about, you know, guys slide and they don't slide all the way down in the second round. They're good enough to get picked at 16. You look back through the years, last year, Zaire Smith, um, a guy who the Sixers traded for from the 10th pick. They picked Mikel Bridges and traded yeah. for him. A uh, year before that, Justin Patton, who ironically was also on the Sixers, he got drafted by the T Wolves. In 2015, Terry Rozier, who's turned out to be a great player for the Celtics, uh, maybe another team. And 16, I mean, all these guys have the same similar pattern. Like, when you pick at 16, you're not at the front. You're not at the back of the first round. You're in that little, like, in-between middle area. So it's really up in the air of whether you're going to get a really good player or get a bust. But when you really, when you pick at 16, you're picking, you're not picking for them to come out 
year one and be a really good uh, contributor or re- be a really good starter. You're picking at 16 for years two, three, and four, and those are, I think are going to be Chumokigi's best years, and especially coming off an injury at number one or in year one. So that's what the Magic are looking forward to. And they got, I mean, they 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 made the playoffs this year and got bounced in the first round. So they're really not looking to crazily improve their their in their team for this next upcoming year they're looking for years ahead right and another team that is going to be looking for years and possibly multiple years ahead is the memphis grizzlies who have been tearing down their team uh and they traded obviously they picked john morant number two but one of my favorite players in the draft they got via trade at the 21st yeah, you're big, spot you're big on this guy. brandon clark i mean he fits so perfectly into their team he'll probably be their power forward and you have jaron jackson jr who they picked the year before mm-hmm. at the center when you look at the nba right now that is like your prime time duo for mm. your front court. And the Memphis like kind of flipped their identity on their head. We talked about this a little last episode where they go from the the grind city Memphis Grizzlies, this all defensive type team, this, this really grind and gritty type team, to now they're like a really high flying team with Ja, Jaron Jackson, and now you put Brandon Clark and others in there too. And if you look at how Gonzaga played, Gonzaga didn't play this past tournament how they normally played in other years where they're very fundamentally sound. They're a very half court team. Gonzaga was high flying this year. You had Brandon Norvell on their team, Brandon Clark. You had all these guys that were going crazy and, you know, Brandon Clark just fits that new mentality of the Memphis Grizzlies really well. Yeah, well, we'll we'll, we'll see. They're pretty high up my league pass rankings, I gotta say, because like you said, it's like a total shift on, on mm-hmm. ideology. They shipped out Mike Conley to the Jazz uh, to make room for Ja Morant. Uh, another person who drafted a guard another team i should say that drafted a guard was the boston celtics uh, who got a steal of a player of carson edwards i mean they, they didn't carson edwards is not the only steal that the celtics got in this yeah. draft the, the celtics drafted very 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 well but i just think carson edwards sliding all the way to 33 is literally a gift in their pocket literally a drop from the heavens i mean you saw normally when players have a crazy ncaa tournament run they shoot off they shoot up draft boards mm-hmm. right and we saw that last year with dante divincenzo <laughs> and villanova yeah. ended up going top 10 um so Carson Edwards has this crazy run and still gets passed down a lot of it's due to his size he's a very under under uh undersized guard uh, and that's why he's been passed up a lot in his life but I think he's he's a player that really fits the mold of a Celtics guard or a Celtics point guard over the last couple of years this high tempo score first type of guard who's going to go get his bucket and I, I wonder if it's almost uh writing on the wall a little bit here for the Celtics because they're going to be active obviously losing Kyrie and losing Al Horford mm-hmm. they're going to be active in free agency now you mentioned Edwards you got Ty Jerome as well who they picked after trading back the Sixers traded up to take Matisse Thibel and they ended up trading back uh and taking Jerome those are two guards right there that you could probably play at the one and two and they both have very specific roles. Uh, Jerome is a great facilitator, mm-hmm. and Edwards is Jerome your. Jerome was traded to the Suns. Oh, Jerome was traded to the Suns. Which, by the way, okay, here's my here's my gripe, and I was going to go into this a little bit. There are too many trades <laughs> that go down, and the way that the NBA does it is that. Right, the Celtics will make the pick, and then, oh, uh, after the new league year proposed starts. Proposed trade, or, yeah. Right, it's, it's proposed. So there is way too much of that going on. Right. Uh, it trips me up. But, but if you if we go back to 
to Carson Edwards real quick. Um, like this, that the the role he played for Purdue was a tone setter, correct? Like he he got going so the rest of the offense could go, especially because Purdue was really big. Purdue was one of the 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 biggest in terms of the size of their players. They ran two big men at pretty much at all points, which is something you're not going to do in the NBA. But it's st- Carson Edwards still found a way to make that game very fast tempo, very high volume uh, for Purdue, and they ran past teams like Villanova and got all the way to the Elite Eight. Um, so Carson Edwards, especially if he's coming off the bench, is someone that the Celtics could utilize a lot, especially if we see someone like we saw Terry, we talked about earlier, Terry Rozier. Um, if they bring in somebody like Kemba Walker, Terry Rozier is not going to want to stay and be a backup role again. I mean, he right. came into a starting role and took his team to the conference finals two years ago. And then when Kyrie comes back, he kind of, he's an afterthought again. He's not going to want to be an afterthought again, again, if they come and bring Kemba in. So, you, I mean, if he walks, now you have Carson Edwards, right. who's going to seamlessly go into that backup point guard role. Yeah. And just piggybacking off of the whole Carson Edwards thing, he averages 24 points a game, leading the Big Ten in scoring. He's 36% from the three, and to sum up, he's a guy who can shoot, a guy who is a playmaker. Mm. Now, those are just some diamonds in the rough that teams found, but guys, tell me, who are some of the players that teams reached for and took a little too soon? Yeah, there was a couple players who I thought were pretty egregious. Happen, happens every year, especially with, oh, bad, especially with bad teams because they're such in a hurry to get a good guy. Like, you might, like, you talk about get the next best available guy who doesn't fit your team well, or you try to jump and get a guy that you think should move up in draft boys, but in, really, in reality, you can get them way later. A bunch of teams did that. Well, and it's funny because we'll talk about these guys. Like, oh, they were so bad reaches. They were this, they were that. And then they'll end up having very good NBA careers. Right. Uh, it, it does happen from it's time to projection. time. It's all projection. It's all projection. A guy who I think got drafted in the top 10, literally based on a single game in the beginning of the college basketball <laughs> beating season, Duke, beating, Duke. beating Duke, was Roy Hachimura at nine to the Washington Wizards. Uh, the Wizards are an interesting team to me because they're a team that's about to implode. It seems mm-hmm. I can't imagine they try and keep winning. I mean, they have a win now core with John Wall, who's been hurt he blew his Achilles mm-hmm. and then you also have Bradley Beal who's turning into one of the better two guards that you could possibly move for also, something I was about to say they're looking to move him so now you bring in Roy Hachimura he's going to have ample if they do decide to blow it up he's going to have ample ample uh possessions at his disposal but this is why I think it's a reach for Rui Achimura. Like, I'm not saying that Achimura is a bad player he's actually a very good player commands the paint and it's actually a very um a deceiving like 6'9", 6'10", which I didn't know he was that tall and that big. But he's not a guy who you center your offense around. He's not a focal point of your offense and a focal point of your team. He's a guy that's going to go and give you at his best, probably in his NBA career, a good 15-8, and 14-10 and 10 type of stuff on, on an average basis. But if you're the Washington Wizards, you're looking for a guy that you could pick, especially in the top 10, who's going to take that changing of the guard from John Wall and Bradley Beal and be the future of your team moving forward. I just don't see Achimura as that. Yeah, and I think it was an interesting note. I believe he's the second ever Japanese-born drafted player. So, like, first in the first ever in the first round, I believe. Uh, that maybe might, that makes sense. I'm going to turn to stat, Matt, to see if he can, if he can get that for me. I, I think he's the second ever Asian American drafted right. and 
he's the first Japanese American. That's right. what it is. So yeah. right, Japanese. and so he's he's making strides there. I'm looking at an article by Bullets Forever saying here's why Roy Hachimura can be the next Giannis Antetokounmpo. See, that's a bad team writing a bad article. <laughs> that's what that's what so, that happens. So if you had to check in on Washington and see their desperation level, there you have it, right there. Well, if you're Washington, are you going to come out and say that look, my bad team made a bad draft choice? Like now, once he's drafted, now you got to go all in because whether you like it or not, Roy Hachimura is for the foreseeable future the future of your franchise. Right, reminds so me now, when, you're gonna, now you got to make it happen. Reminds me of when they drafted Jan Vesely, mm. and then that just totally came apart at the seams. When the Knicks drafted Andrea Bargnani. Oh man! <laughs> or actually, it was um, it was I think it was Brian Colangelo up there in Toronto. That yeah, Toronto. Oh my that gosh. Drafted him. Mm. Yeah, he has two of the worst. Uh, you know, don't no, no, we're not going down the Markel Fultz <laughs> rabbit hole. Uh, save it, bring it back, Jake. Yeah, save yourself. Cam Johnson at save number yourself. eleven was another bad pick in my opinion cam johnson as a player he's a guy who when we talked about guys who might take a little while to come into their own he's someone who i see is that right now he's a pure shooter he's someone yeah. a wing who you can just kick it to which is great and to me when you pick him that high you diminish how great how good of a player how good of a role player cam johnson could be like you put a number 11 draft pick expectation on cam johnson when he's not 11 draft pick style of player mm -hmm. he was the third or fourth best player on unc but when he shined he shined you're right he a pure shooter great in transition great feet and he's got like that perfect textbook shot but cam johnson went way too high right he's, he's also already 23 which i don't the ageism and he, it needs to slow down a little bit because mm -hmm. i think just because look at landry shamit you could have said the same thing about him and he ended up being a very good pick but uh for Phoenix, we'll talk about them a little bit more when we get into winners and losers, but I just think it was a bad reach. Um, and if you and look, also, Shamit was, was was picked later in the draft, not at 11. Right, and you look at Phoenix's team, like, does Cam Johnson really fit Phoenix's team? Well, he's, he's a person that maybe on the back end of the draft, you get to pad your draft right. picks, but is he the first in, one to so fill out? In theory, he does, because you have if you're going to keep Devin Booker on ball as a facilitator and as like almost like that when Harden was by himself without Chris Paul, that type two guard where he handles and facilitates. And then you have Aiton who hopefully can be a low post threat and then the kick out, the last guy open, the Clay Thompson is your is Cam, Cam Johnson. Johnson. But, I, it would make more sense if they drafted him last year after they got the trade from Mikel Bridges, because he's a very Mikel Bridges type player. So they already have that. I just don't see how this pick by Phoenix right now makes sense. Yeah. So speaking of Cam Johnson, he did end up going 11th, which was a little shocking to me. I thought he was going to go somewhere around 16. I don't know about you two. He's the best shooter in the draft for sure. He's 45% from three. He's 6'9", so he's he's going to open the floor for you, right? Um, they did trade TJ Warren for him now, going to the, the Pacers. Their idea, I think, is to free up some cap space to sign D'Angelo Russell and have Devin Booker and D'Lo in the backcourt and call it a day. Yeah, I mean, 16, 20, wherever he was. Like, I, I, Cam Johnson was someone to me that was going to fall late first round, maybe even early second round if he continued to slide. And they jumped up and they got him real quick. The, I do see the whole young movement that the Suns want to do. So, you know, they get rid of TJ Warren. Maybe they bring D'Angelo Russell in. Um, but the, to me, that doesn't, that doesn't justify going up and getting Cam Johnson, someone who was going to be there at your original pick. Yeah, well, and... Like I said, uh, when we get into the winners and losers of Suns, I'll, I'll give you a little sneak peek. They weren't winners in this draft, <laughs> uh, and this pick was a part of it. But someone else, just the last team who I think reached a little bit was the Golden State Warriors picking Jordan Poole at 28. I don't have see like I like I I don't know if I 100% agree with that reach. Like why do you think why do you think that was such a reach for the Warriors? Because well, is he Poole? better than Carson Edwards? Like really, if you're picking, who would you rather have? 
And if you're going to have a guard who, and this is why I say it doesn't really matter, is because how much time is this kid going to get? This is a pick for not this year, not next year. Three years from now, he can be your Patrick McCall or your Sean Livingston. Like, that's who they're picking for. So it's a little different than the previous, than the, than the Cam Johnson and Roy Hachimura at the top half. When you are in the back half of the draft, um, I think that it's a little bit, it's, it's, it's more acceptable to go after these type guys, but. I just don't think that's not where I would have valued him. Well, you you look at what Jordan Poole was for Michigan, was a off-the-ball straight catch-and-shoot kind of guy. If he needed to create his own dribble, he did and get to the rack. But for the most part, he was a great perimeter player, and that's all That's all the Warriors. What else are the Warriors looking for? Someone come off the bench, stand in the corner, and when the ball comes to you, hit a three. That's what Jordan Poole could do for you, and that's what he did at Michigan. Um and he did it two straight years. He did it the first as a freshman. You got to remember his freshman year, he hit two game winners in the tournament, yeah. two back-to-back game winners in the tournament. So he's ready to shoot and ready to shoot in big moments. I think that's what the Warriors saw. Right. And another, so I'll, I'll even this out. I thought the Warriors did a good job at picking Eric Pascal, mm-hmm. who fits very well. He's kind of like a guy who's a tweener. But he's like Dr- he, he plays exactly like Draymond. Right. And you have him like mentored Draymond. under Draymond. I think it could be interesting there. But, you know, the Warriors are going to Warrior. I don't really think that they're too concerned about the 28th overall pick. They've been doing pretty fine without uh, draft picks recently making an impact. I bet if you pulled most of the Warriors locker room, I bet you 99% of them couldn't tell you what pick they had. (laughs) Or after draft night, who they picked for that matter. Like, I don't even know if they really, if they really worried about it. They're just, who are you? Cool. You're here to work. Cool. Let's, let's, you know, let's get the season started. Yeah. Let's get the season started. So we talk about you know, teams going up way too early to get players. And we watched someone who we thought, everybody thought was going to go a high first round, maybe even top 10, maybe lottery, and ball, ball, and slid. Killer suit jacket, okay? The Spider-Man the Spider-Man suit was, was on point. But ball, ball, slid all the way down to the Denver Nuggets, taking him in the second round. Do you agree with that? Uh, so I think that it's good value, obviously. You get into, like... Once you get into the second round, it's like, all right, what guy can I take that maybe doesn't necessarily fit? Because really, you look at the Denver Nuggets, and even if not a lot of holes e- on that team, even if Bull Bull is is really good in his first year, it's not like he's going to start. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have Jokic there, and I don't know if he can play the four. Uh, I was shocked to be honest. He was initially traded from the Heat, and I think that as the Heat, you know, Dwayne Wade just retired. You don't really have anything going on that's super exciting. Uh, Bull Bull is someone who you can slide in and. You know, worst case scenario, he's a second round pick. Best case scenario, he's a starting center who can do a lot of good things for you on offense and defense. Mm-hmm. We well, got to remember Hassan Whiteside just opted into his. Oh my God! Huge, huge. I forgot play- all about Hassan Whiteside, which <laughs> huge, is maybe all you need to know. A huge player option, but this is the second straight year the Nuggets picked someone in the draft with huge injury injury risk. Last year they picked Michael Porter Jr., who, in all types of purposes, looks like he's going to come back. Yeah, I've heard he's looked good and be a very good player. They could possibly strike gold twice with that if Bull Bull maybe takes a year off and works with the same kind of staff that Michael Porter Jr. works and gets his gets his swagger back. And dude has a little chip on his shoulder now. He said, you know, he came out and said that I'm out to prove the whole league wrong, I'm out to prove everybody wrong. They passed on me. People might have passed on him for good reason. Um, but Bull Bull in the nine games he played with Oregon was one of the best players in the country. And he's got that type of trans, you know, transcendent type play to where he could really make a difference on a team, starting, come off the bench, whatever. He shot 52% from three. Yeah, like, And obviously... Obviously, he has a huge frame, just like his dad. I mean, he reminds me so much looks of his just dad. Like him. Looks right. just like him. He looks just like him. He plays just like him. Uh, 
And honestly, if he goes upside, then you're looking at a really him and Michael Porter. If they both turn out well, you're looking at a really, really deep. Well, ima- team. imagine, imagine this Nuggets team. Like the, in the starting lineup, you got to deal with one of the best centers interiorly in the league who can pass, shoot, and do everything from the right. inside. And and. Uh, Nikola Jokic, and then coming off the bench, you have one of the best shooting centers in the league, and now you got to try to guard inside and outside and let them play them both together at the same time. Yeah, you could get a little funky. Like with I him. think this is where the the Nuggets were looking and saying we can. He may not be like he may be a huge risk, but one. If he doesn't pan out, we're not losing. What are we yeah, losing? Second round pick, whatever. What are we losing? If he does pan out, now we're flipping the whole league on its head, and now people don't really know how to guard us because we have all these weapons, all these lineups, all these different things we can do to make the Nuggets on offense such a matchup nightmare to guard. Yeah, and well, we'll, we'll see how that turns out. Uh, but going to winners and losers of the draft, talked about it so much. The Suns front office, though that poor franchise. I mean, <laughs> the, so they had the second worst record in the NBA. They were putrid after picking DeAndre Ayton number one when they should have took probably Luka Doncic. They had Doncic's coach um, and fired him after one year after not picking Luka Doncic. So they do all that. They fall to sixth because of the draft lottery and then traded the sixth pick for the 11th pick and Dario Saric, who only has, I believe, one year left on his deal. traded that pick two two years left. And then he becomes a restricted Mm. Right. Traded that pick to get... Cam Johnson. Cam Johnson. So you do all that uh, and... Also, when you look at the picks in the previous years, Mikel Bridges is pretty comparable to Cam Johnson. They traded mm-hmm. for Mikel Bridges, um, and I think he looked all right in that year. But uh, j- And then to mention the T.J. Warren stuff, they traded T.J. Warren uh, for the 30-second pick and cash. Whenever you're trading a player for cash, <laughs> like, did we not learn with Kyle Corbett? Right, that the one like, is not Don't trade to. players for cash. Do it's the, never valuable Do the enough. Billy Bean thing in Moneyball when he said, it, we'll, we'll give you him, but you got to stock our vending machine for a year. That's basically what you do when you trade somebody for cash. You're not looking to really to get anything with them. You just, oh, now we got some extra money in the budget. Yeah. Uh, I, I just, like I said, I mean, total botching of the draft by the Suns, but I can't say that it is extremely surprising um and also not really like a loser loser because i think they got their guy and i'm happy about it i didn't like what the sixers did i didn't like what the Sixers. i did, did not like what i was the gonna sixers let did. i was gonna let you bring it up but i didn't like what the sixers sixers did either they probably got who they wanted to get in matisse tyble but don't you think he would have been there without trading all those picks trying to move up four slots well and supposedly boston really worked Elton Brand and said, look, we know who you're taking. We know you want Matisse. We're going to take him if you don't do it. Like, that Slime is, ball, Danny Ainge, oh, got him. That, that, is, that is textbook. So speaking of our hometown 76ers, the Sixers front office continues to shine bright like a diamond with their noteworthy performance on June 20th. Laugh. They leave the draft with two future seconds, Matisse Tybel, and some cash to throw around, if you will. First bad look. Let me tell you what their first bad look was in the draft. Making a trade with our beloved Boston Celtics. The Sixers went from 24 to 20, was it? And we give up our 24th for the 33rd. One selection, may I add, before the Sixers' 34th pick. Keep in mind, that was a game changer here. We know he's athletic. Okay. We know he's tough. We know he's a good defender. But we also know... He can't shoot. He averages 9.7 points a game. Last time I checked, that's a significant part in the game of basketball. On a serious note here, if you take a look back on the Sixers picks over the course of the last few years, how many non-shooters have the Sixers really drafted? Ben Simmons, Markel Fultz, Zaire Smith. 
it's just very frustrating at this point. I don't know how you guys feel about it, but how, do, how does this help spacing the floor? Do we think Elton Brand knows something that we don't? Now, now I, I give him props for his midseason maneuvers this year. My initial thoughts with this draft, and naturally, you don't trade up for someone who played college in a weak conference and couldn't average double figures. I don't see him creating much on the floor in this league, but then again, you got to wait it out and see. Who knows? Let's venture back to what Elton says in one of his press conferences about drafting younger players. Too many young players on a team with championship aspirations is not going to work. To me, personally, a championship team finds value in all of their draft picks if they're smart about it. The only thing I can really dwindle it down to is that he's making, he's getting ready to match Jimmy and Harris. But I expected more out of him. I expected more out of the team in general. Um, they also uh, took Mariel uh, Shea Kizu, who's a small forward from uh, Iowa State, and as their 54th choice. He's 23 and will be 24th in July. Kind of contradicts what Elton Brand wanted to do, uh, which brings me to how could this have been a productive and useful draft for the Sixers? And believe me, this isn't mad science here. I want people with the capability to score. Some people who come to mind. We touch on the Celtics. Carson Edwards went, the, uh, like I said, keep in mind that 33rd pick right before the 34th. That was prime. Ty Jerome, point guard, 21 years old. Would have loved to seen him shoot for the Sixers. Uh, I mean, look, if, if you're looking at what the Sixers grabbed, I think they grabbed who they wanted to. If you look at what the biggest, one of their biggest deficiencies last year was on the defensive end, and they got somebody who was the best defensive player in the country, won the defensive player of the year award. Like you mentioned, Joel, that um, the Sixers, you don't want to pick someone who played in a weak conference. Like that's all the Sixers do is mm. pick people that played in a weak conference right. past couple draft picks um, have been all players from a weak conference. Um, but look, I think it, they're, they're wanting, they want to groom somebody who can end up guarding the other person's best player, especially He's on the that. wing. And Matisse Thybul is that. Yeah, I, I personally really, I've talked about him, I think, on this show. He was a guy who I did want the Sixers to grab now at the cost of the trade with the Celtics. I don't know how I feel. Um, and as you said about him being a shooter, a non-shooter rather, his free throw percentage actually varies a lot. And there's a lot of people out there who say free throw percentage is actually a better indicator than their three-point percentage of what type shooter they're going to be. He shot 85% last year, but then the year before that, he shot 71.4%. Then the year before that, he shot 84%. So, like, he's all over the place. All I know is that he's going to be a super stud on the defensive end. Yeah, I think that's all really that Elton Brand and the Sixers were looking for is um, a, a really good defensive player. And to Julie, to your point again, like, Yes, this draft pick, these moves probably indicate that they want to run it back with Jimmy and Tobias. That's probably got to be Elton Brand's priority if you're making a draft pick like Matisse Tybel and trading away other picks. Is you're not really looking, you know, you're not looking for Jimmy and Tobias to leave. You're looking to bring them back. And where Elton Brand has, at least Elton Brand, where he has gone to get shooters has been in free agency. Um, and even in Colangelo, he went and got JJ Redick. Then Elton Brand went and got Tobias Harris. So they don't really look to get shooters out of the draft in these past couple of years. They're looking to free agency to get that. Um, you can still re-sign J.J. You can still get Tobias Harris back. So the three-point shooting could still come back. I think they were just focused on the defensive end in this draft. Yeah, and I mean, someone who did get a shooter would be those Atlanta Hawks who are my number one winner of this draft. They, my number one winner, too. They selected uh, DeAndre Hunter first at the number four pick, and then uh, at the 10 pick, they got cam reddish and you remember i was saying i think it might take cam reddish to come into his own this is a situation where 
he can be whatever what he is right now, and that's all they need out of him. And he could grow with the young team. Especially, he's not even their highest pick in this draft, so it's not like they're expecting a ton out of him. And when you look at who they can run out there, the Atlanta Hawks, you have Trey Young, Kevin Herter, DeAndre Hunter, Cam Reddish, and John Collins. Like, you want to talk about new age basketball. Yeah, positionless, really. Positionless like basketball. Four players are all the same height. Right. So I, I think that works out really, really well for them. Cam Reddish can be the straight shooter that he is. Um, I'm, so it's good. I'm more um, like I'm more excited for DeAndre for DeAndre Hunter to go to the Hawks. I think DeAndre Hunter, his highest ceiling, and it's been said before, his ceiling is like very Kawhi esque, and you can see, you saw that in the Final Four and National Championship game. Just very fundamentally sound, not in a hurry to go get his shot off, and has a big body frame and can guard pretty much one through four on the floor. Um, he, you saw he took over Jarrett Culver in that national championship game, pretty much diminished mm-hmm. him. So I think DeAndre Hunter, especially for such a young team who's going to be looking a lot of offensive-minded players on that team, you need someone who's a little bit defensive-minded and a little bit all the way around, and that's DeAndre Hunter. Yeah, and shout-out to Travis Schlenk. Um, he, was form- he is their GM, former uh, assistant GM of the Warriors. He is building a great foundation there, and the last winner that we'll touch on is uh, the Grizzlies, as we said, John Morant, Brandon Clark, uh, two really great players for their organization. And really what it comes down to now is can they get another John Morant type guy? And that, that, that's to see in years to come. So. The Hawks, the Grizzlies, et cetera, are all teams that three or four years down the road, we will evaluate their draft picks from this year. And they will be able to really tell you if they were winners or losers. Yep. All right. So now we're going to transition from the hardwood to the diamond. What the hell is going on with the Phillies? Bryce Harper's batting average is the second lowest of his career, and his .825 on-base plus slugging is well below his career of on-base plug slugging of .894. Is Bryce Harper disappointing so far? Uh, Hell yes, Bryce Harper is disappointing (laughs) so far. Um, You pay 300, you know, uh, $330 million for somebody over 13 years, and you don't expect him, like, I, I'd be okay if he came in and struggled for a little bit, um, but the way he's struggling and his numbers going down so much from what his career averages are, yes, he's he's disappointing, and they've tried to help him. Like, we, they've yeah. moved him all over the batting order. I mean, in this past week, he went from third to leadoff. Now he's below the, the heart of the order. He's got, like, he's in, like, fifth or sixth right now. Like, they're trying to move him all over, and it's just, it's not doing anything. Um, along with the 248 batting average and 825 OPS, he only has a 1.8 war, 1.8 wins above replacement. So it's showing that Bryce Harper right now isn't truly bringing a whole lot of value to the Phillies. Right. Well, and it depends on on how you view this Bryce Harper thing, because if you view it in this year, yeah, he's disappointing. But don't forget, we got 12 more years on the back end uh, <laughs> for him to write that ship. And I think with the Phillies, like, I don't. There, there's a lot of buzz around them going into the year. I get that, but. To me, the pitching problems were always very apparent, and right now that's what's killing them. Bryce Harper's not having his best year. There's no doubt about that. But they have bigger fish to fry. I mean, they, they, they've been a little inconsistent in this stretch, and every team goes through a slump. Um, but I do think that the the pitching right now is the problem. As for Bryce Harper, uh, you know, his OPS is 37th in the NL. Uh, home runs are 36th in the NL. War is 30th. Like, He's not performing like the MVP, Bryce Harper. And how do you get that out of him? I don't know. It started to turn around a little bit, but if he fully pulls out of it, it's yet to be seen. I mean, it's hard when you don't have a, a fully healthy team. I get that. I get the injuries. Um, but if if we can't move you around the lineup, you can't figure it out yourself, like – 
You're supposed to be one of the best players in baseball. You've been a perennial all-star. So we just need you to figure it out. Sometimes players just need to get out of their own head and get you know get out of a slump themselves. It's like a boss basketball player. You're getting a shooting slump. You just need to see one go in. Right. And Bryce needs to see one go in. And he does try to do other things to help himself. Like I was at the game this past weekend. Uh, he had the shift on and he hit a little like weak ground ball, but to the left side, so it got through. And instead of jogging the first for a single, he tries to leg out a double. And gets thrown out, but that's like good hustle stuff that like that's like good signs to see. Well, and you know what also kind of goes into Jay Bruce had a quote where sometimes you're trying too much. Mm -hmm. Like especially in baseball, he said, you know, sometimes you gotta just take a step back, try easier it's, instead it's of trying harder. It's a sport predicated on failure. So right there, that is right. Him trying to push a single into a double is you're frustrated with mm -hmm. the way that you've been performing and now you try and push it. But the entire team's been that way. In their past yeah. fifteen games, they're four and eleven with a minus twenty-five run differential. They went from leading the NL East by two games, uh, and now they are back five and a half games as of this recording date. They're, they're plummeting. There's no two ways about it, but the they can still write the ship. Sixth six best record in the NL, currently outside of the playoff picture. Um, but it's funny because we've played what 80 something games and there's still a whole half of a season to go and the all-star break is in about two weeks and it couldn't come at a better time for the Phillies get healthy um and get right but you talked about the pitching and that's I think that's spot on because the Phillies are not a team to operate well when from behind and if you start early like if you start off early in the game from behind that's when the Phillies are going to lose a lot of games and you look even last night when Jake Arrieta pitched against the Mets back-to-back -back nights they're giving up right two runs in the For first both inning games, they just turned like where they're turning it around they still gave up early runs early in both those games and, and it's it's hard to play baseball down right when you start um so that's just gotta that's gotta be better and it goes back to to me it goes back to like I don't know why the Phillies didn't make a better push for Dallas Keuchel like if you really think that the pitching is the problem and it it has been. You have your ace, Aaron Nola, not pitching like an ace. Jake Arrieta being all up and down. Like Dallas Keuchel helps secure the top end of your rotation, and they didn't go out and get him for whatever reason. Yeah. And there's a whole bunch of players in a slump, too. Uh, we can go all down the list. Gene Segura, uh, who was thought to be one of the best pickups in the MLB, is now batting 210 in his last 15. JT Realmuto, best catcher in baseball, right? Batting 191 in his last 15. Andrew Knapp has one hit in his last 14 at-bats, the backup catcher. Um, so besides this little two-game winning streak with the lucky bamboo, just the whole team is on a downhill slide right now. Mm -hmm. I don't know, guys. I almost feel like they're overcomplicating their hitting like their confidence just isn't there which brings it back to the mental side of things that we talked about before they seem to have an assortment of issues and no one really has the answers they lack depth the guys you gave up for the most in trades are not performing realistically they don't even have a lead off hitter right now the young bucks they were grooming that they thought would step up to the plate both literally and figuratively, are not really doing so. Lack of better terms, they just missed out. And I'm done waiting for them to figure it out. They even lack depth in AAA. Their pitchers there are no good. They can't hit home runs. They can't hit fastballs over the plate. It's just a little demoralizing at this point. Well, here, here's what I will say is, like, baseball, is a, it's a long season. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think in, in June, July, I don't think we – you really have the ability to get impatient with a team. Unless you're 
15, 20 games below 500 and you have no chance of making the playoffs and you thought you were going to, then you can get a little impatient. But you got to remember how long of a baseball season it is. Like, I get the sense of urgency in Phillies fans. We're supposed to be way better than we are right now, contending for uh, a division lead and maybe even a whole, you know, National League pennant. But... That we, I don't, I don't think we can jump ship just yet. Uh, I think we gotta, we gotta stay the course. A person who I am very, very frustrated with is just in his performance as Aaron Nola. Um, last year was ended what fourth or fifth in NL Cy Young voting, and I mean, it's just he's he's not getting the swings and misses that he did last year. Last year, batter swung and miss at or swung at forty seven percent of his pitches. Um, this year, it's only forty one percent, and his first pitch strikes have fallen from sixty nine percent. To 58%, just not committing the zone like he normally yeah. is. Well, hopefully we got some lucky bamboo uh, from Bar- Brad Miller who brought it in mm-hmm. to the team. Now everyone's doing it. And uh, homered. And homered when right, he did it. Right, and he homered. Uh, so hopefully they got the curveball machine out. There's a lot of funky stuff going on right now with the Phillies. Gabe Kapler getting ejected from games. but The first uh, time the first Gabe Kap- the first time he got ejected, Gabe Kapler did it on purpose. He right. definitely, well, he definitely he, was, was trying to energize, def, definitely trying to energize his team and get something going. Got a jacket. The second, the second one, dude was barely on the he top just, step of the dugout. the dugout. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, After Scott Kingery got domed, got hit right in the head. So like, I don't understand why Gabe Kapler got thrown out because of that. But you know. All right, guys, now it's time to move it on to our new segment called our Mailbag Segment. We asked our listeners to submit a question, comment, or concern about sports for us to respond to. First one comes from Cam Cook. What's going on, guys? It's Cam up in New Hampshire. Um, of the four major sports, what do you think is most important to have a good head coach? I think football is obviously number one, and I think I got to say basketball is kind of head coach can be a little bit more hands off. So let me know what you guys think. Thanks. Uh, I think he hit it directly on the nose right there. Football, you definitely need because football is is the most most strategy from the head coaching position uh, that goes into it. And Cam being up in New Hampshire, probably a Patriots fan, probably knows all too well about how of a mastermind Bill Belichick is. Um, but I'm kind of torn between the next one being basketball uh, or baseball because um, like there's a whole lot of things that a, a baseball manager could do wrong to really hurt his team. And in in baseball, it's like it's it's not as seen as much as basketball because they're in a dugout. You don't directly see the moves that they're making, but stuff like changing a lineup around, stuff like changing a rotation, putting people in wrong positions, and, like that that goes a lot. And considering, I mean, it's almost twice the length of the basketball season. So mm-hmm. if you look at total decisions made, they're going to have a lot uh, more on that behalf. And then also with basketball, while you do need a good coach to be a good team, you also need pretty good players which mm-hmm. that kind of goes without saying but like for instance lebron when he had ty lu ty lu's not the reason they won the championship it's because right. lebron put them on his back and probably did some pretty good coaching along the way right there's so. five players on a basketball court not on a baseball diamond and one player can have such much such bigger of an impact than he can in any other sport in basketball yeah next one comes from richard gosling hey what's up guys richard gosling here i'm very curious to hear your take who would you say won the rap battle between Marvin Bagley and Dame Lillard. 
That's so that's I don't know if you guys heard this this rap beef that went on between the two rappers of the NBA, Dame Dalla and MB35. Um, <laughs> but I'm gonna have to go with Damian Lillard. Like if you heard what Damian Lillard was saying and how he was coming at Marvin Bagley, like establish himself at the top and let Marvin Bagley know just how underneath he was with some of those what the bar what the, the bar they bar. Oh my, oh my goodness. Gosh. Oh my goodness. Said something like, um, how does a king come to battle knowing the kingdom is worthless? Yeah. Oh. And the kings are pretty worthless. Oof. But uh, I don't, here's, I, you know what, I'm going to stick up for Marvin Bagley because when it comes to diss tracks, it's about whoever is more ferocious, whoever comes harder. <laughs> and when you listen to like literally the cadence of their voice and the way that they go at each other, Marvin Bagley comes in hard. He throws in some curse words. Mm -hmm. He has a couple nice bars in his own right. And also remember Dame's been doing this, I mean, at least publicly for a little while. I think Marvin in the song says that he did a couple of Dame's, what was it, Four Bar Friday? Four Bar Fridays. So he did a couple of those, never got a response from Dame, and that, that kind of rubbed him the wrong way. I, you got to go listen to it. It's a good little beef. It's another part of the NBA offseason that's just great. Look, I mean, it, it, it kind of was like... You know, Damian Lillard was giving out bars, and Marvin Bagley was just trying to, like... It, hurt feelings. Yeah, just but hurt like, feelings. Hey, and that's what he He pulled out, like, the State Farm commercials. Like, you can't you can't make fun of somebody in a diss track for stuff they're already making fun of for themselves. If Damian Lillard is going on a State Farm commercial posing as a baby... It's like the Eminem thing. Yeah, like... He takes the power away from it. He's already, he's already... Exactly. In the last battle of 8 Mile. Like, he's, he's already made fun of himself. It was already supposed to be funny. You dissing him about that doesn't do anything for you. Yeah. No, stop. Dayton Dollar won that. All right. Next one comes from Austin Walls, our Philly Tickets giveaway winner. What's up, Straight Facts? I have a question for you guys. <clears throat> so the NBA Hall of Fame is not specific for just the NBA. It's also college basketball um, and international play. So I was kind of wondering what your thoughts are on the NBA making it specific for the NBA, kind of raising the standards for it. Well, I, you know, that, that's a good question by Austin. It, it's tough. Because I think that those players from international or college, like, they do deserve recognition. But then if you make a separate Hall of Fame that's, like, just NBA, the college doesn't have to make their own. They could still use the same standard. Right. And then it's like, all right, which one's more important? Which one should a player strive for? I don't know. I think that there should be some recognition of just NBA players, but it's it's tough. I mean, NBA is already the the best league in the world. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? So if you're if you're in the NBA, you're already in elite company. It's also not up to the NBA to restrict the Hall of Fame. The Hall of Fame has its own committee. So if the NBA wanted to do it, they'd have to go get their own strictly NBA Hall of Fame. But I don't know if that raises the standards or if that lowers the standards because if you make say if they did do just make an nba hall of fame and someone made the nba hall of fame but didn't make the basketball hall of fame now aren't they like not as good like because they didn't make something that encompasses the whole world you just make something that just encompasses the nba yeah it's tricky i mean here's what i will say is that i want something where olympics is not considered because when you're on team usa you're amount of gold medals is completely inconsequential. It's how many times did you play? Right. Uh, you played three times on the team, you got three gold medals. I mean, as of late, Right. There, there was a time when the U.S. wasn't dominating the Olympics, wasn't dominating FIBA. Um, but, the, I mean, the NBA is really concerned about making not maybe making basketball global. They don't want any league to be better than the NBA, which I don't think any league will ever be better than the NBA. But they do want basketball to be very global. So if you take this and just make an NBA Hall of Fame, you, like, restrict that ability. Yeah. Last but not least is from Kristen Hobble. Hey, so what are your thoughts and opinions on the 13 to 0 uh, U.S. Women's National Team win against Thailand? Uh, do you agree with the critics or are you against them? 
I mean, look, um, it's it's the biggest stage in soccer, one of the biggest stages in the world. Um, and we talked about this a little bit uh, a couple episodes ago, right after that 13-0 win against Thailand. If you have a chance to you know, keep applying pressure and to keep scoring goals. I don't see why you do why you do it. Yeah, we talked about this in a, in episodes past, but I agree. I mean, this is the professionals. This is the highest stage that you get uh, as a woman soccer player. You could pour in thirty of them things. You might as well do it. And so, and someone I, I forget whether it was a player or coach Joe Ellis said that they thought it would be a little disrespectful to take the foot off the gas right. pedal and almost put a mercy rule on somebody. These are world class world class soccer players, and they deserve your best throughout the whole 90 minutes. You know what I mean? Yep. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to run up the score in the World Cup, that is the smart and right thing to do because Mm -hmm. it does come down to goal differentiation in all in all with the points that matter. Um, But if anybody else wants to submit anything to our mailbag segment, you're more than welcome to. Just reach out to our Twitter, Instagram accounts, and we'll be happy to put you on the show. All right, guys, we're going to head down into the countdown. Number five. Five is for the number of players born outside of the U.S. to win MVP in NBA history. Um, Giannis is the fifth one, joining Steve Nash, Hakeem Olajuwon, Tim Duncan, and Dirk Nowitzki. Jake, Rank those players all time. Uh, I probably go Elijah Wan, Timmy D, Dirk, Nash, Antetokounmpo. You're really putting you're putting Antetokounmpo below Steve Nash. Yeah, Steve Nash five. won two of them things. Right, Giannis is what 24. That's true. He, but as of right now, as of right, okay, as of right now, I'll give you. I might put Timmy D one just because out of all those players, Timmy D is the only one on that list who's probably best all time at their position. Fair. So I'm gonna put Timmy D at number one. But the rest of the list, I got you. I can live with that. Number four. Four, the number of foreign-born players to win an NBA award last night. Giannis won the MVP. Siakam, most improved player. Gobert, defensive player of the year. And Luka Doncic was the rookie of the year. Look, this is all great. Basketball is a global game. Here's what I'm going to tell you. Draft from the NCAA. If you're going to take a European high in the draft, I know that it's been it's been uh, proven false, what I'm about to say, but I think that the college ranks are still the strongest to draft from. I, I agree overall, but then you find players like this who are diamonds right. on the rough that you can't, you can't let the significant few um, drown out the significant majority, which is the more uh, consistently better players come from NCAA. Yep. Number three. Three is for the number of walk-offs in a row the Dodgers had last week, all coming from rookies. And I'm going to tell you, and headlining that is Will Smith behind the plate. The Dodgers are, like, scary good, like, scary good, rounding into all forms, uh, hitting, pitching, defense, bullpen, everything. Like, the Dodgers are just the best team in baseball right now. We'll see. Talk to me in the playoffs, and if Kershaw and Bellinger are showing up, then you know what? Maybe they have right. a chance. In the same token, we'll Kershaw see. just did let up a home run to Zach Granke, who's a pitcher. Mm. So that doesn't mm. look good. But, I mean, the Dodgers are just so good right now. Number two. Number two, the number of World Series that Albert Pujols won with the Cardinals. He went back to St. Louis for the first time since joining the Angels in 2012. Albert is one of, like, my all-time favorite players. He's a great guy, great player. Uh, and will go down as one of the best hitters ever. I mean, if you if you need to see any influence of Albert Pujols, all you have to do is look at the ovation he got from the Cardinals, um, from Yadier Molina, from Adam Ray, Wainwright in the dugout. Uh, he batted three times against the Cardinals in three different games. Every single time he came to the plate, he got standing O. Yeah. Bringing it down to number one. Number one is for the amount of centers to win MVP since 1996. The only one being Shaq Diesel, Shaquille O'Neal. And look, I mean, people want to say that back in the day, big men dominated. But in the last 
23 years. We only have one center to win MVP. Uh, and that's Shaq. It's a guard-dominated league. It's a guard-dominated game, and it probably just always will be. It'll be number two next year because Joel Embiid's winning All it next year. Right. You can book that All one. All right. And we've gone to the delusions of grandeur part of the episode where Jake just says the Sixers are better than everybody. Correct. And that's all the time we have for this episode. We go to at the buzzer. Jewel, do you have anything to say at the buzzer? I do. So my aunt Kathy happens to be one of our biggest fans. Hi, she aunt loves Kathy. our show. Everybody say hi. Stat Matt, you want to say hi? Hi, aunt Kathy. Exactly. <laughs> I love it. Aunt Kathy made a very real and true remark the other day that I thought I'd share with anybody, and I wanted to hear everybody's thoughts on this. Mm. She said, the more you shit on somebody, the more you love them. What do you guys think? I wish I wish we did speaking facts this week so we could give like a full segment to that quote by Aunt Kathy. Um, here's what I'll say: I shit on Kevin Durant all the time, and I do not love him. Yeah. So Aunt I'm, Kathy, we love you, but uh, I, don't I don't know, know if you're speaking facts on that. That's one. like a, that's like you know what they say like a, a kid in the schoolyard like when when a girl picks on a boy like she really likes him. Uh, I'm not sure that that's not how it works not, with you. That's not, how it, <laughs> that's not how it works with me in sports. But I'm gonna look out for that, Aunt Kathy, because I'll probably be calling some people out. Go ahead, Jake. You have anything to say at the buzzer? Uh, so I was doing some thinking, LeBron shooting Space Jam 2, and I was just thinking, thinking about the people who we had on and what could they possibly do to kind of mix it up. So uh, in the car, you and I were discussing uh, what I see happening, and I think this is a good chance of happening, is the Monstars, instead of a single game, the Monstars want to run it back, and they want to do an entire series, and they're going to have LeBron down 3-1 to one, like the real NBA Monstars did, and uh, LeBron comes all the way back with his Toon Squad. And instead of dunking the ball from half court like Jordan did, he's going to either jump or arm stretch from half court and make a game-saving block like he did in the real NBA Finals. That, that's how I see it going down. And look, if that, can I tell you that is blockbuster, box office type Hollywood material LeBron, right what's there. up? I don't have a job. Sign look, me. I can be your director. Look, look, look. I, I, go, I go really down. can't imagine anything better coming out of Space Jam 2 than that. That will make this past whole NBA season worth it the past two years because it comes out in 2020. That'll make it all worth it if that happens. I really hope it does. My at the buzzer comes from um, a little bit of a, a more serious note. Um, I don't know if you guys heard, but there was a, a comment made on Kansas City Chiefs radio um, about Andy Reid and his son. Um, I won't read the whole thing, but I'll read the most important part. Um, this comes from Kevin Keatsman on uh, WHB 810 down in Kansas City talking about the Kansas City Chiefs scenario and situation with Tyreek Hill. He said, and I quote, the thing is the Chiefs probably think Reed can fix Hill, but they thought that he could fix, they thought he could be, oh, I'm sorry. The thing is the Chiefs probably think that Reed can fix Hill, but they thought that he could be fixed before him and they failed. Andy Reid does not have a great record of fixing players. He doesn't. Discipline is not his thing. It did not work particularly well in his family life, and that does and that needs to be added to this, and we're talking about the Chiefs. He wasn't great at that either. He's had a lot of things go bad on him and his family and his players. Here's what I'll say That's to that. Uh, here's what I'll say to the just disgusting comments about 
a, a person and a coach who doesn't deserve any of that. I don't think anybody deserves that. The Chiefs celebrated Andy Reid's son, son's life this past year at Arrowhead with a moment of silence. If you to be somewhat connected to the organization and to Kansas City sports and to say that about somebody is just disheartening and so gross and disgusting on your end. We're all journalists in this room, and we all have a, a, a silent oath that you take as a journalist to uphold ethical standards um, and to be just... Uh, as, as ethical as you can be. And if you let stuff out like that, not only are you demeaning yourself, but you're demeaning broadcast journalism and journalism, journalism as a whole. I have nothing to do with, with the Chiefs. I'm not even a Chiefs fan. I have nothing to do with Andy Reid. And those comments hurt me. So to to spout off something like that on radio, on public radio, about, about someone who's been nothing but a very good, not only coach, but ambassador for the game of football is very shameful. And I hope that man was fired on spot after saying something like that. I, I really can't believe something was said like that. All right, that's all the time we have for this episode. Big ups to Greg Barron, Kyle Sobieski, and Stat Matt Robinson behind the camera. For my partner, Joel Schmitz. It's been real, it's been fun, it's been real fun. For my partner, Jake Galley, I'm James Jackson, and these have been the facts. Straight up. <laughs>